Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Military Historians or People Too. We just want to remind you that the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are ours and those of our guests. We really appreciate you listening. Please share and enjoy the show. All right, Brian. So I've got um, see, maybe one or two shout outs. Uh, one, uh, I just got back from a very quick trip to to New York City. So Country Mouse went to New York City and survived. Here I am uh, to do a filming with uh, Insider. Uh, they invited me up to do a, a thing for YouTube on Vietnam War films. So uh, Alex Watson, friend of the pod, had done it. And John Caratola down at the World War II Museum had done it on World War II movies. And I was really thrilled to get the ask to do that. But it was a lot of fun, good experience, you know, rainy weather and everything, but had had a had a had a good time there. So good. So that, that was a good thing. Uh shout out to the end of the semester. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's, it's <laughs> which is time. why we look which, which Tony, that's why we look so haggard. <laughs> it's, it's, it's finally it's finally done. But uh but we, we have commencement, I guess, on Thursday, right? So uh we'll we'll, yep. we'll both go to that and but but another one down, man. And, Another and, one. And, yeah. and unlike you, I'm starting to count the total semesters until I'm done, done. Yeah, I'm I'm not anywhere near that. So keep that to yourself. <laughs> I'm, I've, I'm I'm not even I'm a third through. I've got 20 years left. So uh, yeah, you're right. Yeah. You're yeah. Right. You got anything? But, uh, uh, no, I don't have any real shout outs. Just say uh, my alma mater, Clemson University's uh, uh, football or uh, soccer, as we say in the U.S. Uh, team, won the national championship last night. So uh uh, shout out to those um, nonprofit sports. Um, football gets all football, football, American football gets all the attention. But, uh, you know, do uh, take some time and, and go watch those sports that, that don't actually generate revenue. Um, they need people in the stands as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, absolutely. And Tony's part. Tony's probably saying, "Wait, soccer doesn't generate revenue in the United States." And the, <laughs> <laughs> and the answer is no, it does not generate <laughs> revenue. But um, all right. So today we are fortunate to have with us Dr. Tony Cowan. Uh, Tony is an independent scholar and retired British diplomat who had postings in Beijing, Hong Kong, Brussels, and The Hague during his 30-year career. Uh, following his retirement, he earned a PhD from King's College London. Tony's publications include The Introduction of New German Defensive Tactics in 1916-1917. That one came out in the British Journal for Military History back in 2019. He also did A Picture of German Unity, Federal Contingents in the German Army, 1916-1917. And that one was in the uh, uh, Jonathan Krause uh, edited volume, The Greater War, Other Combatants, and Other Fronts, 1914-1918. He is the editor of The Catastrophe of 8 August 1918, which is a translation of uh, Thilo von Böse's Die Katastrophe des... We're just going to say The Catastrophe of the 8th of August 1918. For those of you who are not German historians, that is known as the Black Day of the German Army in the, uh, in the First World War. Um, and that one uh, is a translation of uh, what was a part of the, the German semi-official uh, Battles of the World War series. Uh, most recently, Tony published Holding Out, the German Army and Operational Command in 1917 with Cambridge University Press's Military History series. And uh, I think you're probably the, the third author we've had who's done something with that series. Alex Watson's first book came out. Uh, Jonathan Boff's uh, right. book came out in that series. So uh, so we've had at least three people on who've been part of that series. It's a really good one. 
Um, Tony has participated in the British Army's major staff rides uh, on the lessons of the First World War. He did that in 2016 and 2018. And he is active in professional uh, associations and service. He's a member of the British Commission for Military History, the Society for Military History, and the Western Front Association. Uh, Tony, we are thrilled to have you. Welcome. Oh, thank you very much. Actually, I can add to uh, the number of uh, people you've had on from the Cambridge Military History series. M.A. Fox is also uh, published in that ah, series. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And actually, yeah. when I um, when I pitched my book to Cambridge, one of the things I was able to say to them is, look, what I'm doing here corresponds with um, books you've already published. I've got a chapter on intelligence that corresponds with Jim Beach's uh, book on intelligence, communications, Brian Hall, and learning M.A. Fox. Um, so um, I, I have to give her a shout out because she's a friend of mine. She gave me a lot of help on the book. And when I had a book launch for it, um, I she very kindly agreed to discuss the book with me uh, to start with. So we had a, a really good discussion of that, then a, um, a Q&A, and then a damn good party after that, <laughs> so, which is the, the chief point. Well, <laughs> no, she, Amy, she, Amy's the best. And, and shout out to Amy, too, since Everton beat Chelsea uh, on, on Saturday, right, or Sunday. I can't remember which day, but they beat on, I think, three three to nil or something. Uh, oh. it, was a, it was a good show. So uh, okay, she, okay well, you'll, 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 I'll take your word for it. Um, so terrible confession number one, um, just in case you're planning to ask me about this later, I don't actually know very much about football. Oh, gosh. How, however you define it. Um, <laughs> we were going to ask you, but we, uh, we've we had to do this before. We'll come yeah, up we've had to adjust fire on this question. Spur of the moment question. And, and there's almost uh, certainly another thing that I'm going to have to make a terrible confession about, but we'll leave that for the moment. <laughs> uh, I know what that's going to be. Yeah, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll deal with all that. No worries. <laughs> um, so, so Tony, um, I have to ask first one question. Uh, I think I know the answer, but are you the same Tony Cowan who also wrote Spiked Helmets of Imperial Germany? No, no. <laughs> I, I, so I have had, if from the internet, I have had many different identities. So one of them is I wrote that book on Spiked yeah. Helmets. Uh, I'm also, I'm a ballet dancer. I'm a singer, which would be an absolutely huge joke to uh, my family. Um, I survived a, a terrible car accident. And most recently, I've discovered that I'm a squadron leader in the RAF. I'm probably oh. retired now, which actually, I wish I, I literally found that yesterday, I think. My, the late, one of the latest talks I gave was um, uh, to the University of Lancaster and to uh, joint with the RAF Museum. And I had to begin there with a terrible confession, which you can see this is a bit of a sort of um, theme. Uh, and that was, well, I don't really know much about aircraft. And I wish I'd discovered this factoid about squadron leader Tony Cowan, because I could have pretended to be him. And that would certainly have boosted my credentials. Well, you know, one of the things I found uh, doing the research for for this podcast is that Almost every guest that we have has a doppelganger. Um, there's someone out there that uh, that you know with the same name who who does something completely different. But I had to actually think about yours. But 
because, you know, it is possible that someone that just published a book on the First World War would also maybe have an interest in spiked helmets. So, uh... indeed, indeed. I mean, it's an extraordinary coincidence, but yeah. I, I've never met this guy. I don't know who he is. Uh, and I did wonder when I was starting my PhD whether to claim that book as, <laughs> as mine, but, but I thought that might lead to problems. So yeah. I didn't. Probably, probably could have got you in a little bit of trouble. Well, well indeed. Well, now, that we have uh, have have uh, confirmed that you are not the spiked helmet Tony Cowan. Um, let's start by having you tell us where you're from. You know, what your parents do. What what kind of background did you have, and uh, how did that lead to you deciding to go uh, into a career in foreign service? Uh, well, my dad was in the army. Um, he joined uh, the British Army in the Second World War uh, as a private originally, and then he uh, was quite quickly commissioned, served in Italy and stayed on after the war um, for a full military career. He retired at the, um, at the rank of uh, brigadier. Um, and my mum was um, was very much a, a team with him. I mean, she was she would probably have had to describe herself as housewife, but um, did far far more than that implies. She was a terrific organizer. Um, they were both very hospitable. Uh, and for, at my book launch, I said to the um, caterers, "Look, I don't care what happens, but the drink must not run out." Uh, and I'm delighted to report that it didn't. So anyway. Um, uh, so that that was the, the sort of um, how I grew up. I was in the army, so matters military were what I just grew up with, and I was just interested. So you know, like so many kids, I mean, I, I was a model maker and so on. Uh, I think a, a lot of the time, actually, originally ships rather than anything else, but gradually. Um, I became more interested in making models of tanks. I did that quite a lot. Not not very eptly, I have to say. Um, so you went through uh, the air fix. So you went through the air fix phase then. I I, I did, and I still I think I still got them hidden somewhere upstairs. <laughs> of course you do. Everybody does. Everybody does. Well, indeed, indeed. So, so what, did, um, what did your what did your dad do in Italy? Uh, uh, actually, that that's um, pretty interesting. So uh, this was during the war. Mm -hmm. So he was a junior officer, he was a second lieutenant. I think he had his his 21st birthday um, sort of crawling up a freezing muddy hill somewhere in Italy. Um, and uh, one of the things, he was a platoon commander to start with, but he uh, became uh, the intelligence officer. Uh, and so this being the, so this is his battalion intelligence officer, but this being the British Army, nothing is desperately logical. So he was known as the regimental intelligence officer. And one of his jobs was um, writing the battalion war diary. Uh, so I, years and years and years later, uh, I was reading the war diary in Kew in the National Archives there. Uh, and I was reading the diary, reading the diary, and I started recognizing the handwriting. <laughs> Um, and it was just, you can imagine, that was a brilliant moment. Uh, yeah. So that, that's wow. what he did. Uh, and I mean, it's also an example of um, uh, just the, the role of just, you know, utter chance in war. The, his battalion in, um, this was 44 and 45 when he was with them. So his battalion was told to make in mid-December of 44, one final attack to try to break through into the Po Valley. And so um, half of the battalion made the attack, got into the village, which was the objective. Um, 
and then had to be supported. So the chap who was going to take the mule train up there wasn't there. And the battalion commander said to my dad, okay, Alan, uh, you'd better take it. And dad was just about to set off up there when the proper chap, uh, proper officer turned up um, and took the mule train up. Whereupon the Germans counterattacked and captured everyone, uh, you know, both the companies and, as far as I know, the mule train as well. That would have been my dad. Um, but for this chance that, you know, this guy turned up at the right moment. Wow. Um, so that's always, again, I've never been there. Uh, it's a place called Tosignano. Uh, and at some point I must try, try to go there. So after the war, uh, as I say, he stayed on. He, uh, well, as a family, we were in Germany. We, where else were we? We were in Germany. We were in Malta. We were in Malaysia. He was in other places as well, um, but, uh, but by himself. And in Britain, we also moved around a lot, um, uh, sort of in various places in Surrey, near London, um, in Chester, in Wiltshire, in Northern Ireland, and so on. Um, and also the three children, my brother, my sister, and me, were moving from home to boarding school. So it was pretty peripatetic. And anyway, as part of that, I decided, actually, that's a bit unstable. I, I, I want a more stable career. You know, I don't really want to move around much. So I joined the foreign office. <laughs> Actually, b before that, um, there, I, I, before that, I wanted to join the army, and there was never any pressure from dad. Um, but that was that was what I knew, uh, and that was what I, you know, thought I'd do. Um, so um, when I left school at seventeen, um, I took the army officer selection exam, uh, and I failed it. Uh, and what you could do in those days was there was a thing called an S-type engagement. So you could join the army as a private soldier, do basic training, do potential officer training, and then take the um, officer selection exam, after which, if you passed, you became an officer, and if you didn't, you could leave the army. Hmm. So I did the basic training. I was in the artillery, in fact. Um, so my full academic title is 2422435 Gunner Retired Dr. Tony Cowan. And I would ask you to refer to me as such, please. I will. I will. Absolutely. Thank you. Many, many apologies. Um, <laughs> we'll we'll know, make sure that's shocking. in the podcast description. <laughs> we will put that in there. Well, I, you know, I, uh, I once uh, had a, a very close friend of mine ask me to be the uh, officiant for uh, her wedding. And so I went online and got one of those, um, you know, online minister uh, titles and filled out the paperwork. And, you know, so I often tell um, my my department chair now, you know, please refer to me as Reverend Dr. Brian. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> so you yeah. you had, um, you know, a pretty a wide variety of, of postings. You were in Beijing, Hong Kong, uh, Brussels and The Hague. Uh, as far as uh, your your preparation for that i mean if you're going to get sent to beijing is there an assumption that you you have the language skills i mean or do you just you go and, and pretty much work within the embassy um and and just kind of carry on as a brit every day uh so one of the things the foreign office used to be and hopefully um still is um really good at is language training uh, and this had a, a really deep effect on me in fact i mean i was a classicist when i was at university um uh, so I learned at a time when you really had to uh, master Latin and Greek to be able to do the work. And at school, I'd been taught French. So I did have some kind of aptitude for learning languages in an academic sort of way. Uh, but obviously what the Foreign Office wanted was for you to be able to 
um, you know, work in a foreign country and to be able to, um, you know, discuss and negotiate with uh, the the officials, the people uh, in that country. So it was absolutely amazing, in fact. Um, not too long after I died, uh, Chairman Mao died. Um, so not too long after I died, not too long after I joined the Foreign Office. <laughs> I was going to see if you caught that I'm or not. I'm, yeah. still, I'm still here. I'm yeah. still here. <laughs> We've got our, our first spiritual guest here. <laughs> not too long after I joined the Foreign Office, Chairman Mao died. Um, and suddenly China became interesting. So I volunteered to learn Chinese at a, and the Foreign Office was looking to train someone. So um, they trained me for two years um, in uh, Chinese, which is an extraordinary commitment. Didn't even have to sign anything saying, you know, I'll stay on. So in those days, we couldn't go to uh, China to learn for security reasons, and we couldn't go to Taiwan for political reasons. So the way it worked then, this has all changed since, but in those days, we went to Cambridge for a year, um, and then to Hong Kong uh, for a year, where the army, uh, this is long before the army left, so they still had a, um, a language school there. So that's what I did for, for two years, a year, I mean, a year in Cambridge, uh, you know, on yeah. full salary. And I think I may even have got allowances as well, and certainly did in Hong Kong. I mean, you know, a tough job, but someone's got to do it. So where, anyway, where did you go to university? Uh, Oxford. I was a class teacher at Oxford. Uh, so, uh, so of course, I can. One of my boasts is, well, actually, you know, I've been to both um, Oxford and Cambridge. Actually, the Cambridge bit wasn't, in fact, part of the university. That was located with it and associated with it. Uh, but anyway, absolutely terrific. I learned a lot of Chinese there. Uh, and in Hong Kong, I mean, again, the front office are really good. Um, I was getting quite bored about halfway through the Hong Kong period, uh, and they paid for me to go on holiday in China. Uh, in those days, this is late 70s, you, you basically could not go to China uh, unless you had a special visa, which is a diplomat I could get. Um, and so I had a month traveling around China, not entirely at foreign office expense, but it's certainly funded part of it. Um, and that was, I mean, my morale went you know, through the roof, as you can imagine. Yeah. Uh, and it was terrifically good for my language skills as well. So a uh, very serious training uh, on the language. Um, a bit of, I was um, doing commercial work there, export promotion work. So a bit of training on that as well, plus various other bits and pieces. And I did have a, um, various temporary jobs sort of doing interpreting stuff and so on. And then was posted to, uh, to uh, well, what was Peking when I was there? Yeah. Uh, but, but Beijing in, in, modern, in modern speak. Um, so apart from that, so I, I spent about uh, somewhere over half my career on China, um, learning it, uh, being posted there, working in Hong Kong, uh, both sides of the handover, uh, which mm. is fascinating, obviously, um, and yeah. also in London as well. And, so and you were there. A... So you were there for the handover. Yes. Wow. Yeah. So I, I was actually I was in the handover ceremony. So it, I mean, it's it's pretty unusual. We had we negotiated what was going to happen with the Chinese from eighty two to eighty four, and from eighty four, we knew that come midnight on the thirtieth of June, nineteen ninety seven, we will hand Hong Kong back. Uh, so for thirteen years, you knew down to the second what was going to happen when uh, which you know if you think of what's going on in the world now how often do you have that sort of certainty lots of things are uncertain within that but you know that that was there um so uh, anyway come 
midnight on the 30th of June, 1907. There's a big ceremony. Prince Charles spoke. Um, no, I remember watching it. I remember watching yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. so it was so Prince Charles, who was the Queen's representative, spoke before. And Jiang Zemin, who was the president, spoke after. And you could hear in his voice um, his amazement that the Brits had not done the dirty uh, on this deal. And also that he, President Jiang Zemin, was there at this historic moment of Chinese history, you know, a part of re uh, reunification as they see it. It was just amazing. Uh, so it was a terrific time to be there. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. Uh... Yeah, that is. Um, uh, we don't have anything to compare with that in uh, in our uh, you know history history professor lives here. That's that's uh, that's really because we've had so on, on the show, Brian. We've had we've had two retired flag officers. So Tony is our first diplomat. Yeah, a practitioner yep. practitioner of the dark arts. Um, <laughs> yeah, this is... So I also I also practice dark arts in um, Belgium and in the Netherlands, which is my right. last thing. Yeah, and so um, I, what I mean. It was terrific doing China, but you also needed to take a break, obviously, and do other things, you know, to sort of just get a broader look at things. And as part of that, um, and I enjoyed all the postings I had, but as part of that in Belgium, this may sound a bit odd, that's where I learned German. Oh, so, okay. yeah. um, so uh, I mean, you... You you may you may or may not know this. Um, there are three national languages in Belgium. Uh, right. There's French and Dutch, obviously, or Flemish, but also um, Belgium, uh, but also um, German. Uh, and the FCO rule used to be: um, well, we'll teach. Sorry, FCO, Foreign and Commonwealth Office. Um, we'll teach you the language you need uh, to do your job. We'll teach you that really seriously, which is why they taught me. Um, uh, Chinese. And for Belgium, they taught me French, which I needed for the job. Um, I wasn't interested in learning Dutch, which I didn't need for my job. Um, but I was, by this stage, deeply into military history and really, really keen to learn German. So I said to the Foreign Office, look, it's a national language. You said that you'll give me a certain number of hours tuition in the national language. Um, I want to learn German. And they said, oh, all right then. Uh, and it, was, it wasn't very many hours at all, but I was really highly motivated to learn it. Um, I'd always been interested in German. Um, and so I got a bit of very much part-time tuition um, and a lot of homework. And that got me going. So that so there was method in that madness then to do that. There, there, you had you had purpose. Yes, very much. I mean, that's not yeah. what I told the foreign office, obviously, but uh, <laughs> that was certainly my so your secret safe with us. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Can we cut that bit, please? Yeah, right. <laughs> they, they do. They do pay my pension. And <laughs> yeah. I want to keep right. that coming in, right? <laughs> Indeed. So that's so, what I can afford to do the military history. So it's important. So let's back up then a little bit because you just you just spilled the beans there. Some you had a long interest in military history, which you know obviously from your you're growing up and your father's experience, but where did that first manifest itself, your interest in military history? I think, well, the first I can remember of it was at my secondary school. Uh, and I would have gone there. I, I wasn't aware of this, I don't think. I would have gone there around about the time of the 50th anniversary of the First World War. And in our English class, one of the books we were reading was Robert Graves' Goodbye to All That. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and that's the first first award book I can remember reading, and I was absolutely fascinated by it. And then um, after that, um, I uh, became interested. I, I was an ancient historian. Uh, that was the, the bit of the classics course I really liked uh, was the ancient history side. Uh, and mm. so, um, uh, I mean, a pretty key influence was reading Thucydides' Peloponnesian sure. War. Uh, so again, I mean, it's a terrific history anyway, um, but, uh, you know, um, having to read that in Greek, which wasn't a chunk of it, really, really difficult, uh, but also just understanding about, well, how does the translation work? Um, how do sources work? He, he was a player for part of this time. What effect does that have on bias and so on? So there's all of that um, stuff going on. Um, and then in Roman uh, history, um, the thing which was really interesting was Roman politics. Um, and there was no party system, but there was um, so politics worked by sort of things like client rela patron client relationships and stuff like that. Who you had, who you served with as a consul, um, who you served with on military campaigns, who you were married to, who you were the son of, um, uh, which part of the country you came from. And so later on, when I was studying the Chinese Communist Party, it's a one-party system, so in effect, there isn't a party. That's how Chinese politics worked. And so I had no trouble understanding that at all. And obviously, there was the ideology as well. But the whole question of patronage, who served on which military campaign, who was from which part of the country, absolutely there. And if you've had the chance to look at my book, um, plug for book, I'm sure you've got a copy of this, but here is my book. Yeah, yeah. Holding out, cheap at the price, buy lots. Uh, that's the first <laughs> commercial break. There will be many more. Um, so uh, the, if, if you've had the chance to look at that, um, yeah. uh, one of my one of the chapters I most enjoyed writing was the bit on uh, personality, the role of personality, mm -hmm. uh, where I go into things like network and so on. And again, you can see exactly the same influence going on there. So for me, there is a link, I mean, both from the way that languages have affected my career and the way that specifics have affected my um, career as well, things I've studied and so on. Um, I mean, beyond that, um, the other thing which really got me into what I'm doing now is, um, I, I don't know how this happened, but at some point I was talking to my dad and he was saying, this would have been in the 1980s, um, uh, I'm not quite sure what age you guys would have been there, but um, if you were sort of um, here at the time. But anyway, this is the I when was, it was. I was. <laughs> okay. Uh, so um, my dad said to me that he didn't know very much about what his dad had done uh, in the First World War. He knew that his dad, my grandfather, had uh, been seriously wounded and lost a leg, and he knew he'd won a couple of medals. That was about it. So I just thought to myself, well, it must be possible to find out. And so that's what I started doing. So not too long after that, I was posted to Belgium. And one of the great things I was able to do was to take my father down to show him where his grandfather had been. And oh, I was wow. able to okay. show him okay, this bridge we're standing on, when your dad was wounded, he was in a German first aid post between this bridge and that wood 200 yards away in this railway cutting. Um, uh, you know, so uh, it was just terrific to be able to do that. 
Um, and really things snowballed from there. I mean, I gradually, when I, at that stage, I was really doing all this work by myself. I didn't know that anyone else was particularly interested. And when I got back from Brussels, I discovered the Western Front Association. Mm -hmm. um, I went to talks given, uh, I went to talks given by the London branch, one in particular, um, by a chap called John Lee and another one called uh, Chris McCarthy, who were talking about part of the uh, the um, Passchendaele, the Third Battle of Ypres. Uh, and they were analysing this in great detail as part of a project going on at the time. You probably won't have heard of this. It's called the Schlum Project, S-H-L-M, uh, which is the name of the four people who were running it. And the L-M is John Lee and Chris McCarthy. Oh, okay. And so fascinating talk. And at the end of this, they said, uh, they asked any questions. And I put my hand up and said, that's really good. But what about the Germans? And they, and they said, there, you're next. Uh, we're having you for this project. And so there's I, always I, one in every audience. I, I know I won't make that mistake again. So I, what I did for the project was study the 34th British Division, which mm -hmm. is the one that my grandfather was in and the one I've mentioned in my in my book. Um, and then from there, I joined the British Commission for Military History. And at some point during this stage, so I was still working during all, the, all this time. But as it came towards um, retirement, I started thinking, well, what am I going to do next? Um, and that work was really important to me. And that was something I definitely got from my dad. Uh, and I knew I was going to need a sort of core to my, to my life, uh, something to get me out of bed in the morning, something to give meaning to it. Um, and so what I decided was to do a PhD. Uh, and after a lot of um, toing and froing, um, I came to the obvious thing, which is the First World War. Um, I came to the obvious bit of it, which I knew about from researching my grandfather, which is the spring offensive of 1917, the Battle of Arras when he was wounded and the French Nivelle offensive. And I decided, well, you know, loads of people can study the British Army or the Canadian Army who were also there and the Australian Army who were there as in part of it. Anyone could do that, but not that many people. And this is one of the shameful things about British education. And probably I imagine it's the same in the States as well. Uh, very few people actually speak or read uh, languages these days. Right. Yeah. Uh, actually, I must have a rant. Remind me to have a rant about that later. Um <laughs> Uh, it's probably when you ask an awkward question. Um, so uh, I just decided, okay, well, I could, uh, I'm uh, linguistically, I could either do the Germans or the French. And I just thought, well, probably German is, looks as if it's less researched as an army. Most people think it's a more difficult language. That's what I'm going to do. And so that's pretty much what happened. I'm so actually, sure. when I when I was um, considering what uh, PhD to do, I I can't remember exactly what else I looked at, but the Italian campaign was certainly one of them because my dad was there. And the other thing from my final posting with the Foreign Office was um, the Hague. Um, mm -hmm. Sorry, that, that was in the Hague. And so it was the um, um, the Dutch campaign of 1940, right. uh, which was, in military terms, very short, but um, I was only, the main bit was only about four days. But there were all sorts of things going on in relation to it, internal Dutch politics, diplomacy, um, uh, intelligence, special operations, the first mass use of, um, uh, of airborne troops, uh, part of which uh, worked by the Germans, obviously, part of which worked, part of which didn't. Um, there's the whole question of why Gamelin is doing what he, you know, this Montgomery type figure does this really odd thing. Uh, there's the whole question of the effect of uh, using uh, 
the French army's strategic reserves to go and link up with the Dutch, which goes disastrously wrong, uh, and you know potentially was the one of the major causes of the the whole catastrophe. So I did look at doing that, um, and then um, a friend of mine said, "Look, Tony, it's bloody difficult doing a PhD. Better edit that bit out. Uh, it's very <laughs> difficult doing a PhD. Um, uh, you know, do what you know, which is the first world war. So I did. But but you you went to you went to King's, you know." later in life, shall we say. And, and you know, people like uh, Jonathan Boff, you know, he had a career in finance and, and, and ended up going back, back, to, back to school. Uh, what was that experience like, uh, going back to, to that, that graduate level at King's uh, later on in, in, your, in your career? And, and you've got, you know, guys like uh, like David Morgan Owen, who are probably, what, about 32 at the time? <laughs> if that, you know, yeah. he's probably more like 18. Yeah. <laughs> no, it was it was absolutely fine. I, I did consider doing a PhD at the end of my time as an undergraduate, which would have mm. been on um, uh, ancient history. And I decided not to because, you know, all I've done is education. I want to, you know, do real life as I saw it at the time. Um uh, so, and uh, by the time I actually came to do the PhD, uh, I'd also done really a lot of really serious work uh, on military history I mean, right. as an amateur and as a yeah. hobby. But I knew a lot of the people. I knew Gary Sheffield quite well from mm -hmm. the British Commission for Military History. I knew Bill Philpott. I didn't know my supervisor, um, Bob Foley, um, but it was easy enough to get an introduction to him. So I knew quite a lot um, and I knew um, quite a lot of people. So I was actually at the um, University of Liverpool to start with, which is where Bob Foley actually He's Robert Foley to me, but everyone calls him Bob, so I will too here. Um, uh, so uh, it was a school of history there, and there were about 32 people in it, 32 postgrads, um, of whom about three quarters, probably two thirds, three quarters were youngsters, and the rest were, you know, in some shape or form, uh, mature students or retirees like me. Uh, what I've always found, I mean, I am uh, even then, uh, and I was much younger then than I am now. Uh, I mean, I must have been 30 years older than. Uh, than, the, than the ones coming straight off their MAs. But actually what counted, and this is still the case now, is do you have anything interesting to say? Yeah. Uh, you know, are you worth talking to? Um, and so that that's really what counts. Uh, and ditto, you know, going on battlefield tours and things like that. You know, you, you're at King's and you 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 take on um, uh, a thesis on the First World War and you're looking at, at German operational command uh, focusing on spring 1917. How did you decide to to really, you know, narrow it down to 1917? And then, um, you know, what does this what does your book tell us about the German command that that we didn't know? Uh, well, the 1917 bit was relatively easy. Uh, because that's what my family history stuff had been um, about. And having done the family history stuff, when I started reading around uh, around it, um, I um, uh, I started, uh, you know, I just got more into more and more depth about that. And yeah. then I realized, well, actually, this is part of a much bigger whole. It's the, there's not only the um, Allied Western Front offensive, but there's also um, what was planned to happen in, or did happen in Italy and on the Eastern Front. Uh, and so <clears throat> once I started uh, doing the PhD, uh, you could see that actually this period, specifically early 1917, is really pretty crucial. I mean, these battles are absolutely enormous. 
Um, they are probably, in terms of the number of troops standing ready to, to fight uh, at the beginning, they're at least as big as, you know, bigger, I think, than the Somme. And I've got actually figures for this in the book. I can't remember the details, but, you know, they're, they're, they're absolutely enormous, these battles. And that does have, this is something I didn't realise to start with, um, but uh, the, the subject I chose to do and my research had a sort of symbiotic relationship, you know, one drove the other. Um, and so um, I came to realize that because the it was so big um, from, from the German side and even bigger from the Allied side, a huge chunk of the German army was deployed to defend against this offensive. Mm. Um, and in source terms, I mean, you'll know, actually, one of the things I'd be interested to talk to you about at some point, Brian, is what sources you've used for your work, uh, which archives and so on you went to. But um, I mean, I don't need to tell you this, that a lot of the sources um, were destroyed after in the Second World War uh, yeah. and by, others, uh, by other um, causes. But there was a major bombing of the German archive, of course, in Potsdam in yeah. April 1945. Uh, and that must have destroyed vast amounts of stuff. But there is still, a, I mean, a huge amount remaining. And two of the um, uh, archives it's remaining in are Munich, which you will certainly know about because that's the one that everyone uses, but yeah. also Karlsruhe. I mean, at the time, Karlsruhe was the capital of Baden, which is a, fe a federal state, of course. Um, I still don't understand why um, Baden had a separate archive. But anyway, it did. In 1914, 7th um, Army uh, on the German left flank, uh, the le leftmost uh, army in 1914, was composed of two Badenese corps, uh, Army Corps, and one Prussian one. Um, and therefore, it's predominantly Badenese, and that may be where it started as well, in terms of its headquartering. And so 7th um, Army's records are in um, Karlsruhe, Sixth Army's records and Army Group Ruprecht, which is the Army Group facing the British, are in Munich. Yeah. Um, and Seventh Army, which is one of the major armies facing the French on the Chemin des Dames, are in Karlsruhe. So you've actually got these two archives there, um, which allow you to have a much broader look at the German army um, than, uh, than most accounts can, which focus more on uh, Munich in, in particular. Um, so although my, coming back to the second part of your question, um, although my account is, I, I mean, I'd say, well, it's these two battles, actually it's broader than that, even in its own terms. It goes from November 1916, where the Allies started planning the offensive, to mid-July 1917, when the Germans comprehensively decided this is over, um, the Schwerpunkt is on the Western Front is now moving to uh, Flanders. So it, it's sort of whatever that is, eight months. Uh, and, and so it's actually covering quite a slice um, of uh, the war as a whole. But it's small enough to allow me to look at the German army and German army command in really considerable depth, uh, especially because I've been to I'm far more archives than just those two. Um, I think I've used seven in the book, and since then I've been, been to more. So um, the actual um, depth of the sort of micro research I've done, and this is one big advantage of being retired, of course, uh, I can actually <laughs> af afford uh, to do this in terms yeah. of time, which you know, if I was a youngster with a career to pursue, I couldn't. Um, so, you know, I can just go back and look at more stuff. So the, uh, I mean, you'll probably have seen, I mean, I'm claiming, obviously, uh, I've evolved these five command tasks yeah. 
um, uh, which emerged from my research uh, on the history of German command, what I could see going on in this specific offensive, what I could see German commanders and staff officers thought with the problems they were facing at the time, and of course, modern works on, on command. So from looking at all of that, I've evolved these five main tasks. So that is new. Now, obviously, um, some people think um, these are, um, th this is terrific. Um, that's really helpful to have this structure. Uh, and this could be applied much more widely. Some people think they're wrong. Um, this doesn't make, this really doesn't work. It doesn't include um, enough, uh, you know, it's it's too, you've aggregated this at too high a level. And, and as I say, these people are just wrong, so we can ignore them. But um, <laughs> in in the middle, there's the vast bulk of people who say, yeah, yeah, fine, and just get on with the book. Um, you can so, say that when you're retired. Yeah, you can say, yeah, yeah. He's not worried about tenure. He's not worried about tenure. <laughs> no, indeed. Uh, promotion. So, so, so but, but actually, so you were asking what was it like being a sort of Ulster doing the, the PhD? Uh, but, but actually, that is, to some extent, the not worrying about promotion thing is a positive side. Yes. But obviously, as an independent scholar, one thing I don't have is the status uh, you know, you, you could say, well, I'm a professor of this, a doctor of that or whatever. Um, but I've got to say, well, independent scholar, then I've got to, uh, you know, explain why I know what I'm talking about. Whereas you can right. just drop this in and there you are. But That's generally, fair, it's think, an unfortunate but fair point. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I was thinking about this the other day. I was looking at um, uh, something, some foreign office thing about describing what, uh, you know, what their PUS does or something. Uh, and it was straight back into the jargon, uh, you know, how they advertise for posts or what the objectives are. And I thought, I am so glad I'm not doing that anymore. Yeah. Uh, so I don't, I don't envy you. That's, uh, I mean, the, the academic side of your job is probably great. Um, but the other side, the administrative side, um, uh, not so good. And that was one thing, obviously, I left behind. So um, anyway, in going back to the, the question, what does this, what is new about this? So that, that my five command tasks are, are new. But also, I've just done so much basic research on the German army, even where stuff I've done and uh, people knew about, actually, it is in so much more detail that, in effect, this is new. So, I mean, for instance, it was known um, that uh, the guards had, uh, guards regiments had a lot of influence, and I've shown in much more detail how that worked. Um, I've explained more about the, and this is just a few examples. I've explained more about the intelligence structure, how the intelligence worked. Um, uh, and with a couple of case studies, and I, actually I've got a couple of other case studies which I, I wrote at some detail and then dropped because I realised I didn't need them, and I was I was a bit um, pushed for word space with the uh, word count with the yeah. PhD. Um, uh, your communications, for instance, I was quite struck actually when I was looking at communications, uh, by which I mean you know, the handling of information, not just technical communications. Um, so that corresponds to Brian N. Hall's work on communication to the BEF. So I sent him my um, draft chapter and you know, incorporated his comments and so on. And one of the things he was saying is, well, actually, this is very similar to what the British Army were doing. And I was able to incorporate that as part of my roundup. Uh, the book isn't comparative, um, but it does it. It is designed to be the comparison with work on British or French armies, uh, and there are comparative elements in it. And that's um, Brian's comments uh, are one demonstration of that. So I think those are the, in terms of well, what does this tell us? Um, what new does it tell us? One is the command um, 
to us, which I argue, actually, you can apply these. It's quite clear that you can apply these more broadly, certainly to the German army um, throughout the war uh, and probably to the Allied armies as well. And it looks as if uh, actually this would be relevant uh, later on. I mean, for instance, talking about um, mission commander, Auftrag's tactic, uh, I mean, clearly in the Second World War, this is an absolutely major issue. Um, similarly, um, issues of promotion and selection and so on, you can see that what the German army is doing in the Second World War is pretty clearly cor uh, correcting what they came to view as mistakes in the First World War. Hmm. So, uh, you know, the, these command tasks, um, as far as I, I, I would say, definitely do apply much more broadly than just um, early 1917. So my early 1917 focus allows me to look in across considerable breadth and in considerable detail, uh, but it's a case study uh, from which we can draw much wider lessons. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, a couple, I'll comment on a couple of things you said here. I think, you know, one, you're spot on. Um, there, there has unfortunately been uh, a decline, uh, at least from my observations, in the amount of German military history that's been coming out lately. Um, you know, you've got your book, uh, the most recent, you've got Jonathan Boff, you've got uh, Watson, um, but, you know, if you if you know anything about the German Studies Association, um, you know, it's it's the professional organization for people who do German studies. And I've really uh, been disappointed the past, let's say, five, six years. Um, just the, the amount of military topics at the conference, it, it's really in decline. You know, looking at your book, you've you've done the archival work. Um, you're absolutely correct. I mean, when I go to the German archives uh, outside of Berlin, uh, very often I'm the only English speaker uh who's there. Um, and I'm sure you had similar expense, uh, experiences, you know, when you're uh, in, in Munich, you're going to see people, but when you go to uh, Karlsruhe um, and I went there uh, as well, um, you know, you're, you're a bit of a novelty. Uh, <laughs> 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 They're very, very concerned about why you're there. But, uh, but, uh, you know, I think, uh, yeah, your book is, is, um, is much needed. And, uh, and I, the reviews I've read and, and I haven't finished it, but um I have listened to you talk about it on an uh, interview you did for the Western Front Association. Oh, yeah. And, uh, I think people are really going to enjoy it. Um, and Good. so it's, Thank uh, you. you know, it's, it's, it has a lot to offer in terms of us understanding, uh, as you said, you know, how the German army did manage to hold out for so long, the mistakes they made. Um, and, and then some of the things that they 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 did well. What was the the most challenging thing for you working with those uh, remote, not remote, but those uh, kind of unknown German archives? Um, what was the the biggest challenge? I can tell you, for me, uh, going to to Munich, it was uh, dealing with the archivist who who generally insist on speaking in Bayerisch. Um, <laughs> um, I uh, no, I didn't find that. I think it was probably was just a sort of general thing when I started out of just getting to grips with what the hell am I doing? What am yeah. I going? How am I going to select what to look at? I mean, what was so I. Went to, I first went to the archives probably in about 2009. Um, and so um, since then, um, I mean, Freiburg in particular has come on 
by absolute leaps and bounds. Um, I mean, it was always very rich, but it was in the old days, it was just more difficult to deal with. Uh, and yeah. now it's absolutely terrific. I mean, um, it, this is partly just a, I mean, just common to all archives. You know, now you can take photographs, which you couldn't yeah. uh, before. I mean, that's just revolutionized things. There's much more online, uh, actual documents online. Uh, I mean, when I first went there, I, I don't know what it was like when you went, Brian, but um, the uh, even the catalogue wasn't online and then yeah. it was online if you were in the archive and now right. i can consult it from home and that's i actually apart from anything else i can yeah. see sadly much more easily the gaps in my research um uh, but i mean that's just absolutely terrific and, and so that that's going to be um uh, really important in some of the new uh, research I'm doing. So my new research, which starts rather before the First World War, goes back to sort of the late 1890s. Um, there's much more handwritten material. So because I'm my, my research is obviously basically from division divisional level command to army group level of command. So it's those slices, and most of the stuff I have to read um, if it's um, documentary is typed. Not not by any means all of it, but right, most of it yeah. is. Um, but earlier than that, that sort, same sort of material um, is is um, handwritten. And that's, I can read handwriting, but of course it's a slog. Yeah. And to be able to sit at home and calmly look at a document, maybe download it and, you know, transliterate it and so on, make, it, it just makes it, <laughs> it indeed. And what I tend to do is convert them into PDFs, blow them yeah. up and type between the lines if I'm really struggling. Um and so suddenly, you know, you can actually do stuff that you just would not have been able to do before. And even with typed stuff, you can afford to look at things that you couldn't have before because time was so limited, actually, in the right. archive. First time <clears throat> I went um, and I went to Freiburg was 2003. And oh, right. um, that was back when they they had the uh, the service they still have, uh, Zelka, that you if you want to copy, you get it made by the in-house copying service. Um, but there's a two week you know, time period there where you, you turn your stuff in and then you can't get the, the, the copies for two weeks. And so, you know, back before photographs, that meant that you came and then you had to, you know, wait for them to send you copies or you just sat there and you, you typed everything out verbatim, you know, in German. Um, and so, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. A, a much, much different world now. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, you know, um, so, Bill, what do you think? We need to do uh, jump into rapid fire. Let's, um, I, Tony, tell us briefly about your the new project. Yeah, let's hear about the you new just project. Just mentioned as it. Well. So, what what are you doing? Now? Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, so, um, uh, I mean, it's, it's basically again, this is part of uh, being uh, coming to this as an older scholar. Um, uh, you know, I'm not going to write uh, sort of some world breaking book. So, I reckon if I'm going to make a contribution which is useful, I'm going to um, do things in depth um, and therefore continue the sort of thing uh, I'm doing now. So the um, two things I'm actually working on at the moment are joint articles, one on comparing German and British intelligence with um, aspects of it with Jim Beach, uh, and another uh, with Dr. Tim Gale, who's an expert on the French army, uh, on um, uh, could the Nivelle of Offensive ever have succeeded. Uh, so that's those two. Uh, the possible book would be for the Army Records Society, which produces one volume a year um, on the British Army, uh, do documents on the British Army. It can be anything, um, any period, uh, any rank, uh, any subject. And so they've done um, British views on the German Army before the First World War. Mm -hmm. They've done French views on the British Army during the war. So I'm thinking of offering them um, 
British uh, German views on the British Army, 1898, 1918, 1898, when they first posted a military attaché uh, permanently to London, and 1918, obviously. And so I've got some really, really good stuff on this, which I've started translating. Um, but I'm struggling with the early bit of the period at the moment, and that's where the handwritten stuff... I'm, I'm not struggling because it's handwritten, so that doesn't help. I'm struggling to actually find the stuff um, from yeah. that period. Yeah, but that's uh, that's at the moment a sort of gleam in the eye. Um, I haven't pitched this formally to the uh, the Army Records Society yet. But I think that's a brilliant idea. Yeah, I, mean, I, I that's it's it's it gets to the idea of you know how how do how do armies perceive others? Yeah. You know, and and what what biases and and misconceptions and whatnot do they have? I've always been fascinated with the idea of of foreign military observers in wars. Uh, you know, whoever they yeah, are, yeah, yeah. yes, um, yeah. You know, there there were some some British army officers, you know, in the United States during the our Civil War, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, right, uh, Fremantle and and people like that, and and it's always fascinating, you know, what what do they think? What are they learning? What are they reporting back? And and then then I guess the hard thing is to connect, is how is that information used? Yes, that's I think that's the tough bit is trying yeah. to trying to make that connection sometimes, but yeah. that's I think it's a great idea. Well, Tony, this has been great. Uh, yes, we, we, we need to put you through our, our rapid fire ringer. Shall I gather? Yep. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> so this is probably going to be where um, others of my terrible admissions come out, actually. And yes, yes. No, we, 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 will, we will explore some more. Uh, you've already you've already failed on one hand with with no football allegiance. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, oh, I wonder uh, if I can get a clean sheet, actually. Yeah, you get a clean sheet. Ah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. You may just redeem yourself a little bit. There. So, so, Bill, <laughs> give me one second here, because uh, which London football club do you support was question number two. Yeah, it's number oh, two. Okay, actually, I can tell you that. Okay, okay. well, then we'll, we'll leave it. Then, then we'll, okay. leave it. we'll leave okay. it. All right. We'll Okay. Um, so, so what we do is we'll ask you a series of questions, answer as best you can, and, and we always remind our guests that uh, because it's our show, we have the right to uh, judge and comment on your on your responses. But you're a diplomat; you can handle that. Yeah, you can handle <laughs> that. Yeah. You can even brush yeah. that off. You'll be fine. <laughs> All right, Brian. All right, are you ready? Yeah. What is the title of your autobiography? Um, the title of my autobiography: I am my own hero. Ah. <laughs> that's a good one yeah okay right. that's a good one i was going to suggest i have a terrible confession <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a good one too yeah that's a, good that's one. a very like good it. one it could be it mine. could be i have a terrible confession uh i, I am yes, my own hero here indeed it could <laughs> be. all right oh, that's um, good. So, which london football club do you support Okay, as I say, I'm not interested in football, but it would be Arsenal. Um, oh, and uh, the reason is um, because I was 242-4358 Gunner Cowan, uh, and oh. in the Royal Artillery, um, the only football club you could support was obviously the Gunners. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay, that makes, that makes sense. That makes yeah. sense. I like it. I like it. Actually, at some point, I must actually try to watch a game. <laughs> <laughs> So Champions no rugby or Champions anything is in full swing. So, uh, no, it would be. Um, I, I am interested in cricket, okay. Um, okay. but I, I imagine you don't want to talk about that. So. No, no, no. We we no. that's you know when we were talking with James Holland, you know he's he's I think honorary chair of their cricket club there in Broadchalk and oh uh, right okay you know yeah. so he we we had to get into that with him absolutely yeah uh, okay what is your favorite diplomatic posting? Well, I enjoyed all of them. Uh, I think I'd probably say the first one, actually, um, uh, Peking stroke Beijing, mm -hmm. 
because I suppose because it was the first one, so every, everything was new and everything which later on might become, you know, a bit boring, actually was terrific. Um, but also, um, and it was everything that went in with it. Uh, it in those days, no one went to. I mean, as I was saying, no one could really go to China, so it right. was all new. It was actually um, really quite a romantic place to go from that point of view because it was so unknown. Yeah. Um, it was it was classified then as a hardship posting um, because of the security. Uh, it was a sort of KGB type uh, situation. Sure. Um, you know, you you assumed you were always being uh, you know monitored and all that sort of thing. Um, which that didn't worry me. Um, in in physical terms, you know, the sort of uh, things you could buy and so on were pretty limited. Travel was also restricted. That was getting freer. But uh, it was just terrific. Uh, I mean, I spoke Chinese when I um, first went. And in those days, very few Chinese people spoke uh, English. So every time I had a transaction with them, whether it was day-to-day -day or for work, um, we were speaking uh, Chinese. And so day by day, my Chinese got better, sure. uh, which gave me the yeah. confidence. In fact, right from the word go, when I was first traveling in China, before I was posted there, I, I never felt worried because I always felt, well, if I get myself into trouble, um, I can... Um, you know, I can explain myself at least. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so it was great. It had a deep effect on me, actually. Um, you know, uh, learning Chinese, um, uh, being posted there, and then working on it afterwards as well. It's amazing how that has come around now, because you go there now, or like for me going to Vietnam, they, you know, they teach English in the schools now. Yeah. And and well, they, all the other kid they want to they want to practice their they don't want to listen to me butcher their language they want to yeah. practice English on you right well, yeah. well I mean as an example of how diff different it was uh, so in those days again you look at me you won't believe this I had uh, a full head of of um, reddish hair um, and uh, so in the street. I mean, the police literally had to move me on because there were so many crowds oh, yeah. <laughs> um, around saying, who is this? You know, I was bigger than them. I was dressed differently. My hair was different. My eyes were different. And a ginger. Wow. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, uh, well, uh, okay, maybe I sh shouldn't have said that. There are a couple of bits I'm going to want to cut from this. That's one of them. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. Who would you rather have dinner with? Ludendorff or Hindenburg? Hindenburg. Good good call. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, Ludendorff, yeah. Uh, I mean, he's obviously an absolutely driven man. So Ludendorff is the one who always gets um, described as being he's the important one in the uh, in the combination, and perhaps he is. But it is typical of how the Germans look at command. You know, you've got the commander, and you've got who is the sort of the personality, uh, and you've got the staff officer who is the expert, uh, and you need both of them. And actually, you can see that with um, Hindenburg. There is more than one occasion where, including at the beginning of the Battle of Arras, where Ludendorff in effect panics um, and has to be calmed down by Hindenburg um, and you know just we've been through this sort of thing uh, together we can do this um, uh, and he's just comes over as being much more clovable I and mean, I wouldn't actually like to have dinner with either of them either would, yeah. <laughs> would, <laughs> would definitely be yeah. him and, yeah. <laughs> after uh, after reading a book about Ludendorff recently uh, yeah Ludendorff is even uh, a bit worse than I, I thought he was um yeah, so uh, good good call going with. So, him. which book was that? 
Um, it was uh, it was called um, Dragon Slayer, and uh, it was by a uh, guest of the show, uh, Jay Lockenauer. But yeah, uh, no, it's uh, it's it's a it's a great book, and um, and definitely you know confirms that that Ludendorff played a much larger role in uh, um, creating an environment in which Nazism yeah. could thrive. Um, so. Uh, Okay. Um, what are you binge watching on television or streaming or, or however you watch uh, watch shows? Well, until about yesterday evening, I would have said Fargo, hmm. um, which I, because I was binge watching it, and I've now realised that actually it's still going. At the latest series, the fifth series, yeah. um, is um, is um, still going out. So can't see the next one till um, uh, till next week sometime. That's how I am um, with slow horses right now. We got to wait. Ah. Uh, Right. I, yeah, I've I've read one. I I can't see those because I'm not on the. Um, I can't remember who's actually streaming that, but I'm, whatever it is, I'm not on it. I, I read the first book, and I, I know everyone loves it to bits. I wasn't hugely convinced, but I mean, in terms of binge watching, I mean, you name it, I've yeah. binge watched it. Okay. Most of the most <laughs> of the stuff. Um, I, I wouldn't want you to get to give the impression I spend my whole time staring at the screen and not getting on with my very important work obviously but anyway um so what have I seen uh I mean uh, the good wife uh the sopranos oh, uh, yeah. better call Saul yeah, okay. uh, which I saw before um breaking bad uh I mean you name it you know I've watched so this <laughs> this is fascinating Brian so you know I'm the one who's binge watching all these Brit shows. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Brits are binge watching our stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but there is, there is some, there is some terrific American stuff, obviously. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I love it to bits. Yeah. yeah. And I, the one I, I didn't like was Suits, actually, which I, I gave up on, which is the only time I have given up on one. I, I'm with you. Um, my wife asked if we could watch it and, the first couple seasons, I was like, okay, yeah. And now we're probably in like season three, and I'm just like, you know what? You're going to have to finish it on your own. I've kind of lost interest in it. Yeah, um, I mean, that's roughly yeah. what happened to me. I mean, with all of these shows, I mean, something like House of Cards, say, you know, that, and of course with series of books, that tends to happen. You know, the first one, two, three, four, or whatever, brilliant, and then it tails off, yeah. but it's still watch. But with that one, it just started annoying me, and I, I yeah, just stopped. So, I'm yeah. right with you. Um, Okay, uh, what are you reading for pleasure? Uh, actually, that follows from the binge watching. So I was binge watching. Gosh, terrible, isn't it? Um, I don't really binge watch at all. Actually, you know, I'm much more, you know, <laughs> far, reading, far, far, noted, reading noted. serious yeah, literature yeah, and so on. And the, <laughs> so um, I was. I can never remember what it's called. Is it Babylon Berlin or Berlin Babylon? Babylon yeah, Berlin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Babylon Berlin. Anyway, so as with all these ones, I came late to it. So I've watched a couple of seasons of that. And then I thought, actually, I'd quite like to read the books um, that it's based on. So that's what I've been, oh, so I've been binge reading. Um, uh, so there are, I don't know if you come across um, the original books. They're really good. Yeah. Um, they've translated five into English. There are at least a further four in German. And I think the guy is Victor Kutcher yeah. or something? I yeah, should know. And yeah, I this is part of the I read this stuff on Kindle, and part of the trouble with Kindle, of course, is you know, if you've got a paperback, you can see straight away every time you pick it up what the right. title and the and the, yeah. the author is. You don't with Kindle. Anyway, so, so Folker uh, Kutcher. Uh, Folker, okay, Kutcher, okay, right. So I got I got different bits right than I thought I had. Um anyway, they're they're terrific. Well worth it. If you haven't come across them, he 
does um, one year at a time. So they start in 1929. Okay. Um, and so the, he's done five in English. So he's got up to 1933. And the Nazi party wasn't really figuring in book one. Yeah. I think there's a bit of mention of the SA and that was about yeah, it. Yeah, but you can see where it rises it in. gradually yeah. increases. Yeah. And then 1933, I mean, it's terrifying, actually, uh, just thinking about this. Suddenly, you know, you've gone from rule of law to, you know, rule of whatever it is or no rule of whatever it is. Yeah. And really, really frightening. Yeah. Um, so um, I, I'm debating oh, with myself whether to read them in... German. Um, so my German is absolutely fine in terms of, you know, writing this book, holding out. Please buy it. Um, <laughs> but uh, but but I, I'm very instrumental when it comes to learning languages. You know, what is my aim? What do I need yeah. to do to achieve that aim? And beyond that, so reading novels and so on, um, uh, more difficult. <laughs> I can't get oh, yeah. caught out sometimes. Re reading memoirs. There's, re there's some German general who um, wrote a diary, um, which uh, you can read. It's handwritten. Uh, and so I can read it with difficulty, but I can read it. Absolutely fine when he's talking about military stuff. But then at some point, he starts wittering on about, and against the sound of the gunfire, I could hear the nightingales singing. And, you know, how am I meant to interpret, you know, the nightingales singing? Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway. Well, we are both fans of Babylon Berlin. We have recommended yeah, yeah. it to, to many yeah, people. It's we very both good. Like that. It's I've, so good. What I've a great up, production. Yeah, yeah, I've picked up the books in bookstores a couple times and looked at them and almost bought them and haven't done it. And uh, I need next trip. I just need to buy a bunch of yeah. them and bring them home and, and read them. Yeah, and I um, having decided to do it. Uh, it was available for um, uh, a set of five on Kindle. So that's how I that's okay. how I did gotcha. it. Good. Okay. What is your favorite museum in London? Uh, I think that would be the British Museum. Yeah. Uh, I have to think about that. I'll probably go on thinking about this while I'm talking. Um, so I'm pretty. I live um, pretty close to the Imperial War Museum, um, okay. and my book launch was at the National Army Museum. So those would be obvious. So things you, to say, have you been to the Army Museum since they've re done the renovation? Uh, yes, but I'm yeah. not sure I've looked around it. Yeah. Um, so I, for the book launch, I mean, we basically we were um, uh, downstairs in the sort of reception right. area. Um, so I haven't really been around it, but I think I must have been around it. So they reopened in 2016, didn't they? I think so. Um, yeah. I haven't yeah. been since they've redone it. I'm, I'm anchors to go, actually. I love yeah, that. I so think that's a great museum. There are yeah. different views of it, um, w whether that's worked or not. Yeah. I found they've got some superb stuff there. I mean, I noticed yes. um, when it's going round one bit, they've got the cloak that Captain Nolan was wearing in the charge of the Light Brigade. But what they don't, Crazy. you know, things like that. And what they don't do, though, is really explain, well, what is the charge of the Light Brigade yeah. and why oh, the yeah. Crimean War and yeah, stuff Yeah, why should like we care that. about this? Yeah, yeah. Actually, talking of museums, I can give a shout out. I was in the States earlier this year, um, and I've got a cousin there who's um, in Baltimore who really likes military history. And he took me off to uh, Antietam and to mm -hmm. Monocacy. And the oh. museum at Monocacy, I thought, was superb yep. for a little local museum. Um, you know, which did explain uh, not only the detail, but the, the background. And someone like me who doesn't understand, um, however often I read about it, the, the American Civil War, um, uh, then, uh, you know, it was really great. The only thing it yeah. didn't 
Island House as a cafe. So I complained, I, uh, having raved to the the staff about how good it was, I did complain about the cafe. <laughs> Lack of. <laughs> yeah, well, you're going to have that every once in a while. But Antietam's a great place to go. That's really one of the best preserved yeah. uh, Civil War battlefields. You yeah. So I mean, British Museum. I've um, you can be a friend of um, uh, places like that. So I've got a couple of things where I'm a friend plus one, so I can take yeah. um, a, a friend along. And so I've mm. seen some terrific stuff there. There was a brilliant exhibition about Germany there um, a few years ago. Uh, the aim of which was to um, get away from what most Brits think. You know, well, basically Germany is the First and Second World Wars, right. and it was to show just the the breadth of German culture. Right. Really yeah. brilliant. Okay, uh, this is my personal favorite question that Brian came up with. So, uh, been a while now because we've, we've we're yeah, we've racking up a lot of responses yeah. to this one. So you get to listen to only one band or singer for the rest of your life. Who is it? Terrible confession number two. <laughs> you don't like music? I don't. It's not that I don't like music. It's just not terribly into music yeah um so uh i mean there wouldn't really be one and i wouldn't be too well, who, who, so think of it as like you know you, you, the radio comes on and there's something playing you're like okay i like that i'm glad that i'm glad that yeah. song's on well it's good i mean my taste in modern music um is i mean goes back you know way back when it's, it's literally going to be um the rolling stones or um yeah. okay. queen there you go that's um, fine. Yeah. I, I'm a big fan of the the album. They and so, actually, part great. of the reason with the Rolling Stones in particular is that I used to, when I was in um, in Beijing, we had an embassy club there, and the junior diplomats used to have to take it in turn, um, sort of organising the club. And so, um, I, I always found when I was organising dances and things that you know people would give you um, tapes to play and they you know mixes and so on, and that'd be absolutely fine. But when you put the stones on, everyone, including me, which is uh, unheard of, came flooding onto the dance floor. There you are. And it really that got works. things going. That works. Uh, so <laughs> that's that's right. good. I mean, apart, We're going with apart from that, I'm afraid if you ask me about bands, it's going to be things like the Royal Artillery Band um, <laughs> playing um, British Grenadiers. <laughs> so, I think that's actually true. Like, so I think that was one of his. Yeah, I think he did. Yeah. One of his yeah. Bands. We'll go with the stones. I like that. Okay. That's a good story. Very good okay. Story. Um, you've spent some time in Munich because you've uh, you've gone to the war archive there. Um, in your opinion, what is the best Munich beer? Um, I can't say from Munich, but I can say from Potsdam, actually, oddly. Um, I was in Berlin um, uh, earlier in the summer, and I met up with uh, a couple of uh, German academic friends who've uh, given me a lot of help on my book um, in Potsdam. And they said one of them's from Munich, and he said, "Okay, we're going to take you to um, a Bavarian restaurant in Potsdam. It's right next to the station. Very convenient. So that's where we're going to go. And in particular, it's got good beer. Um, and it was Augustina beer. Yep. And okay. I can't. Yeah. I can't remember. I should have noted down. Really, real mistake. I didn't note down exactly what it was. I think it was just a Hellas actually, yeah, which we yeah. normally go for. But it might have had a more specific name. And anyway, in the interests of cultural research, I was, I was I was in Berlin for a couple of weeks, and then more recently than that, I was in. Um, 
Freiburg and Karlsruhe. Um, and in the interest of extensive cultural research, I did have one or two other German beers. And I can report the Augustina was definitely better uh, than yeah. the others. Yeah. Um, but I'm going to Munich, I hope, um, to continue my research um, next spring. So I'll be able to report in more detail after Great. that. <laughs> well, if you if you haven't been there, uh, next time you're in Freiburg, uh, there's a place called uh, Martinsbräu. And is their local brewery, uh, not the big uh, Ganta Brauerei, uh, but Martinsbräu is unfiltered, all natural, um, wow. and and it is uh, it's it's really nice. Um, can't remember which it's near one of the the the, the city gates, but I can't remember which one. I've, but um, I'm pretty sure I went there um, last time I was there. They're really yeah. nice place, actually. I enjoyed yeah. that a lot. Um, but I okay. still think the Augustiner was better than that beer. Oh actually. yeah, I, I agree. Augustiner is is uh, is first rate stuff. Um, okay, last question. Uh, it's always the same. Uh, Bill is a Texan. I'm a South Carolinian. Uh, Bill prefers brisket, which is beef, um, uh, when it comes to American barbecue, and, and uh, I prefer pork. So we gather you've spent some time in the U.S., um, and the Brits always give us all kinds of crazy answers like, you know, roast lamb when we ask about <laughs> barbecue. <laughs> but, uh, um, so what uh, what is your preference? Do you go with the beef or the pork uh, for American barbecue? Well, I... Although I have spent time in the States, but I never had a barbecue there. And I can't actually remember when I last did have a barbecue. But anyway, I would definitely say pork. Okay. So, All right. Um, we'll take it. So, so that should have got 50% of the audience anyway. Yeah, it, well, no, it, more it than that. 75%. Okay. Probably yeah. 75%. It, it's Good. Right. That's 75% by the book. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there you go. There well, you hey, go. I tell you, you did something smart. I was looking at your webpage and uh, you said that you've the book's coming out in paperback in 2025. Uh, two years after it first. Yeah, which should be. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So that I mean, I think that's key. Uh, obviously, Cambridge does first rate stuff. But uh, for, you know, people like Bill and myself, for us using Cambridge books in our classes, it gets difficult because of the price tag. Um, right. And so that paperback book makes it makes it yeah, possible, uh, makes yeah. it possible for us to do it. And so uh, you will see academic use of the book go up considerably when when that paperback comes out. Yep. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. I hadn't heard that before. Yeah. Um, so uh, and there, I understand that Cambridge don't actually make any um, changes. It is the same book, which just yeah. comes out in paperback. Yes. And they yeah. said a couple of years after. So that, yeah. that's what I'm expecting, yeah. which that's is actually good, not, that, uh, not that long. Time. There is an electronic version, of course, which is slightly cheaper. I don't know yes. if that helps. Yeah. And a lot of our students actually get the electronic version now. Yeah. That's yeah. just how they do things. So, yeah. 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 Mm. yeah. Well, Tony, we have uh, have have really enjoyed this. Um, uh, yes, yeah, so the, the book is great. Uh, I, I highly recommend it, and um, I think you're you're going to continue to see um, you know uh, interest in it. I know you've got a lot of talks planned and have been doing talks, and uh, this has been really nice. Had a, a great life. Yeah, this and, has been uh, fun. This has yeah, been a lot of fun. Great. Yeah, yeah, I've certainly enjoyed it a lot. Actually, it was it was really good. Yeah, you've, you you've brought out um, loads of things I wasn't um, expecting to say. So. That's what well we do. done. That's, that's yeah, we that's do. what that's what we pride ourselves on. That's uh, what we, we do. You know, Excellent. We want to we want to know. Uh, you know, your work speaks for itself in most cases. Uh, so we want to know about you, and uh, that's what our listeners really enjoy. So uh, we're glad that you uh, you were game for uh, you know for telling some stories. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, guys. Tony, it's great to but, meet but, you. Yeah. So, yeah. but but just to finish up, are you? guys going to smh next year yes yeah right well i hope to, I'm, I'm going i'm giving a um, oh, talk there. Okay. Uh, so um with um i know i'm going to be with bruce goodmanson 
um, we're talking about 1917, surprise, surprise. Um, I'm talking about Germans, obviously. He's talking about the French. And we assume that SMH will panel us up with someone else. And the original panel I'd got, um, sadly, someone had to drop out of the panel I was proposing to them, or going to okay. propose. Um, so they'll put us up with someone else. But anyway, I will be there. I'll make sure I um, drop in to, to see you. Yeah, yeah, no, well, absolutely. Yeah. We'll look absolutely. it up. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. We will, maybe we, we can go get some you. legit barbecue. Maybe. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's awesome. We... <laughs> that's a good idea, actually. Awesome. Yeah. Certainly some legit beer. Yeah. 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 All sure. right. Well, Tony, hey, it's great to meet you. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank yeah. you very much. Yeah. Bye, Tony. All right, guys. Bye. Bye.